yes, you are in. And Casey's back. Deeper is back. And Casey brings it. And what is your most important supper? What is your most important meal? Uh, quite the question. Casey brings it. Buckle up. Here you go. And now I'm burying, looking head for sale. I didn't hear a thing. I've got to be, you've got to know. Begging you, please, bear in my soul. I want it all. I can't believe you. We're actually at the back half of a sermon series that is all linked with last last week of Jesus' life. And so this is kind of in preparation for Easter. And so I have a ton to go over, you guys, so let's get to it. Who in here loves food? Now before you before you raise your hand, I'm not saying you like food, I'm not saying it keeps you alive, I'm saying like when you go to a party, when you go to a holiday, when you're on a vacation, like food is your thing that you're excited for. Yeah, you guys are my people. You guys, I've always been into food. Like, I remember in middle school, I remember getting off the bus and I'd throw my backpack and kicking off my shoes and running into the kitchen just destroying the place, right? And it just got worse when I became a teenager. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. I used to show up to my girlfriend's house with a bag, like a plastic grocery bag full of food, and none of it was for her. Like, it was just... It was just for me. Now, this is how I know that God is real. That woman married me. Like, bro, you're 17 years old. You're going to be here for 20 minutes, and you have to pack a snack every time you leave the house. But for real, have you guys ever thought about how amazing food is? Like, science science tells us that right now inside of your mouth, there's five different receptors. And each receptor has its own purpose. It's made up of about 4,000 taste buds, and each receptor has its own purpose of salty, sweet, uh, texture, savory. So when you bite into a cheeseburger, you're tasting the burger. You're tasting the tanginess of the ketchup and the sour of the pickle and the texture of the bun and the creaminess of the cheese. Like, God could have created food to just taste like dirt. And we could just choke it down and it could sustain us. But instead he makes food diverse and delicious and man, sometimes powerful and euphoric and can bring back memories. In fact, did you know that God didn't just give us food to sustain us? He didn't just give us food for our enjoyment, but he actually gave us food for remembrance. This is why so many of our holidays are centered around the kitchen table. This is why George Washington, when talking about that feast day of Thanksgiving, he said it's a, it's a holy day to give thanks to the great being above. Now here's why I bring this up. I bring it up because tonight we're going to talk about the two greatest meals in all, all of Scripture. The Passover and the Last Supper. So let's get going. You guys can turn to Matthew 26, starting in 17. Now, I need to do some work before we actually get there. I want to bring you guys back to the beginning. So in the beginning of time, 
the Israelites were the first people to marry themselves to God. Now what I mean by that is like they made a covenant with God, and because of this, he chose them as his chosen people to reveal himself to the world. But here's the problem. They did it imperfectly. So man, they, one moment they'd be close to God, and then the next moment they'd be following the culture, they'd be going after other gods, they would be killing each other, they'd be raping. Man, they even got so bad that they would actually go and sleep with a prostitute. And then she would bear a child, and they'd take this prostitute, and they would burn it alive to the demon god Moab. And so we have these, all these sins piling up on the Israelites. And the way that they decided to take care of them is through animal sacrifice. And so they'd take a bull or a lamb, and then they'd slit its throat, and then they'd believe that the blood of that animal would actually cleanse them of their sins. Now this went on for thousands of years. And in those thousands of years, prophet after prophet raises up and starts telling people, it's not by the blood of bulls and goats, that you're going to be partially cleansed of your sins, but it's going to be by the blood of God that you'll be eternally saved. And then at the age of 30, this Jewish man named Jesus comes on the scene. And he starts fulfilling all of these prophecies. He starts eating with the tax collector and the sinner. He starts healing people. I mean, dudes would come up to him with no fingers on their hands, with skin falling off their body, and he would heal them. Man, he would feed thousands with just a few loaves of bread. And then he talked about the kingdom of God in a way that no one ever has. And because of this, he got this massive following of people. And on the last week of his life, he walks into Jerusalem, as Michael Baker talked about a couple weeks ago, and people are screaming out, Hosanna, Hosanna, as they lay down palm branches. Because they know, they know that this is the Messiah that was promised to them. And because of this, the religious elite decide that they're going to kill him. But Jesus' face is set on this holy Passover that's about to happen. So let's start reading. 26, 13, 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? As you go into the city, he told them, You will see a certain man. Tell him, the teacher says, My time has come, and I will eat the Passover meal with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus told, told them and prepared the Passover meal there. So what is this Passover? Why are they gathering together for it? So the Passover, even to today, is the most holy holiday, the most holy meal for the Israelites. And the reason is, is about 1,700 years before Jesus, this huge seven-year famine just strikes the land and decimates the food supply. And so Israel has to go to Egypt to find rescue. And so at first, Egypt was a safe haven for them, for protection and food and survival, until it wasn't. After a few years, Israel starts to grow, and the Pharaoh looks across the land, and he decides that he's going to exploit the, the man 
power of the Israelites. And from this, from this, he sets taskmasters over these people, beats them down, takes away their stuff. You know, like the pyramids? You know those temples, the Egyptian temples with the face gone? Most of those are at the backs and the hands of slaves, many of which were God's chosen people. And so the Israelites start crying out to God, where are you? But you said that you would never leave nor forsake us. You said that we'd become as numerous as the stars. You promised God, my baby is a slave. We are being beat down. What are you going to do? And these cries go out for year after year, generation after generation, for 430 years. Imagine this. Imagine that you're a slave. Imagine that your parents are slaves, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, as far back as you can imagine, and your children are going to be slaves. You cry out to God, and you hear nothing. And then God answers. God calls this Jewish man named Moses into Egypt to go and confront the Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Now, if you've ever seen Friends of Egypt, you know this part. And so Pharaoh kind of snickers and he blows it off. No one's ever defeated Egypt. And so God just absolutely decimates them with plagues. First he turns the, first he turns the Nile River into blood, and so they're struggling to get water. And then he sends these annoying plagues, like frogs and flies and gnats that are just crawling on these people. They can't sleep, they struggle to eat because they're just everywhere. And then it gets more severe. God sends hail to wipe out their crops. And what doesn't get wiped out by the hail, he sends locusts to come and eat the rest. And then he causes their animals to get sick. And so now they have no food, they have no water. The people who once, who once survived these famines are now going through a famine themselves. And then God sends another plague, a darkness over the land that is so dark, so heavy, that scripture tells us that it can be felt. And on the last plague, God simply tells Moses to go back to the Israelites and tell them that they're to take, every household is to take a lamb and they're to slaughter it, and to take its blood and put it on the doorposts of their homes. Because that night, the angel of death is going to pass over Egypt. Hence, Passover. And anyone who does not have blood on their doorposts, the first or the first male born, will die. And through this meal, through these plagues, over the course of maybe two weeks, Israel is saved out of Egypt. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of years erased in just two weeks. And God says, I don't want you to forget how strong I am. I don't want, to, want you to forget how faithful I am. And so I want you to take this Passover meal year after year so that your grandchildren will know me, so your great-grandchildren will know me, so that no one in your lineage will forget me. And so that's what they're celebrating tonight. 
Jesus, being a good little Jewish boy, is actually following what his father told him. So let's go on, starting in 20. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the twelve. While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one in turn asked, Am I the one, Lord? He replied, One of you who has just eaten from the bowl with me will betray me. For the Son of Man must die, as the scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for him, or for that man to never have been born. And Judas, the one who would betray him, also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, you have said it. So imagine this. You're in the middle of your most sacred celebration. I mean, you're, you're drinking good, you're eating good, like you're celebrating. And then Jesus just drops his bomb that one of his closest companions is going to kill him, or sell him to death. Let me tell you something about Judas. Judas likely followed Jesus somewhere between one and three years. Over the course of those, that time, he ate with Jesus. He slept shoulder to shoulder with Jesus. He walked in Jesus' footsteps. And he watched as Jesus made the blind see the deaf hear. I mean, he watched the dead man get something and walks because Jesus told him to. People would have definitely said that Judas is Jesus' follower. And yet, just a couple hours after this meal, Judas goes off and sells Jesus for about $200. I think it's so easy for us to walk through these doors, come in here and play church. I think it's so easy for us to put on a smile and be kind to others and raise our hands during worship. And we can even know a lot of Bible and not know the maker of the Bible. When I was in college, for about three years, I got high every single night. And I'm not, I'm saying I went hard. And I would get together with my friends and I would joke about how I was a stoner and kind of giggle about it. And I would even get high on, on Saturday night and then I'd show up to church the next day still buzzing. I served coffee in the church. I went to the youth groups. I went, I went to the small groups. I raised my hands during worship. I got on my knees and prayed. I asked to experience more of God's presence. And then one day, I remember I was standing in the back of the church serving coffee, and as soon as the first chord of worship was hit, man, I was overcome with conviction. And these words, I couldn't get them out of my mind. You can either be a stoner or you can be my follower, but you can't be both. And I remember going into my car and sitting there, and for the first time, like, I mean, there were many times where I was like, oh, God, take this away from me, but I wasn't going to do anything about it. This time, I was actually like, I'm going to fight this. Like, I'm going to put this whore to death. Because I have... I am Jesus's. And I'm telling you, the first time, like when I actually did that, I started to experience God in ways that I didn't even know were possible. And I'd wake up in the middle of the night 
and I would I would feel him standing there. I'd get on my face and pray, and I would actually have to ask him to back up because his glory and his the joy that I was feeling was so powerful. It felt like I was just going to burst into flames. Man, I'd get to my car, and I would worship so hard that it'd feel like the windows were going to blow up. Like, I'm telling you, you can experience God's presence in a way that you can't put into words. But I would have never experienced it if I wouldn't have stopped playing footsie with sin and finally decided to grow up and marry my God. Uh, this isn't in my notes. I think there's some some of you in here who are fooling everyone. You're fooling your teachers. You're fooling your mom and your dad. You're fooling your youth group leader. You might even be fooling yourself. But Jesus is showing us you can fool everyone, but there's one that you can't fool, and that's him. Let's go on. 26. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it into pieces and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it. For this is my body, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Then they sang again and went up to the Mount of Olives. Similar to us during Thanksgiving, during Passover, the Jewish people would gather together. And when they would gather together, what they'd do is they'd order this meal, they'd start to relive the Passover. And I'm not saying they're trying to remember it. I'm saying they would put themselves in the shoes of their ancestors. So they'd start thinking, what would it have been like to be owned by someone? Like you don't own anything, not even your own body. What would it be like to watch as God just demolishes Egypt with all of these plagues? What would it be like to sit in your house as the angel of death passes over thinking, is that blood actually going to save my baby? Is my baby going to die tonight? Or are we going to be free in the morning? And as they remember this, what they do is, when they got to talking about the lamb, they would take the bread and they'd take the wine and they would remember the body and the blood of the lamb that was slain for them. But when Jesus gets to the bread and the wine, he flips it on. Rather than talking about the lamb, he says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Here's why. Jesus knew what was coming for him. In just a couple hours from this meal, Judas would sell him to the religious elite. Jesus would be blindfolded. He would be punched. He would be spit on. I mean, think about this. The God who created the very glands and the very muscles that you need to swallow and digest food, those muscles are now being used to propel spit onto God's face. 
After this, they take a crown of thorns. These thorns are estimated to be about an inch long. And they took a branch and they beat it into Jesus' skull. From here, Jesus was scourged. What scourging is, is it's the most brutal and humiliating way of death that the Romans could come up with. What would happen is they would take a person and to humiliate them, they'd strip them down naked or near to naked. They'd tie their hands up on posts like this so that the flesh on their back would be tight. And then they'd whip them with cat of nine tails. What a cat of nine tails is, is it's a whip with nine fringes on it. Half the fringes have balls of lead. The other half have hooks. So that when the executioner beat the person, the balls of head of lead would hit the flesh first and tenderize the muscle underneath. So that when the hooks came after, they'd dig in as deep as possible, not just taking not just taking skin, but they would take muscle and sinew with it. I see some of you guys. Sorry. This is what he went through, man. Let's go a little further. Historians tell us it was not uncommon for a rib to be taken and swung across the courtyard. And Jesus, they took this cat of nine tails and they beat him and beat him and beat him and beat him until there was nothing left of him. Until he was to the point of what the prophet Isaiah prophesied, that he wouldn't even be recognized because he would be so absolutely destroyed. Many people died just from the scourging alone. Jesus wasn't the lucky one. They then took Jesus and forced him to his feet and put this cross member on his back. This cross member makes it the T shape of the cross and it's estimated to be between 70 and 90 pounds. They then pushed him and forced him to walk a half a mile through the winding streets of Jerusalem, where the very people who just three days earlier were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, are now cursing at him, saying, save yourself with your God, spitting on him, kicking him, knocking him over, all the way until he gets to the top of Golgotha. And when he gets up there, the Roman soldiers grab his arms, pull them out as far as they possibly can go, and then they take nine-inch spikes and start pounding them through the most sensitive nerve centers in your body, your hands and your feet, until he's clung to the cross. And then they hang him up on the cross as if he's a trophy they had just won. Now the way a person dies through crucifixion is asphyxiation. See, with your arms, all your weight dangling on your arms like this, your diaphragm struggles to contract so it can't pull in oxygen. And so what Jesus would have to do is he'd have to push up on his feet and pull up on his hands. And when he'd get a little gasp of breath, he'd slump down. And as he slumped down that wooden cross, the splinters would gouge up into those open wounds. And he did this for, for breath after breath after agonizing breath for three hours. Until with his last breath, he shouts, It is finished!
Jesus took that bread that night, and he broke it, and said, this is my body. What he is saying is this is the same body that will be punched, that will be torn to shreds, that will be spit on and nailed to a cross. This blood, this blood is the same blood that will go dripping down my face from those thorns. The same blood that will be cast across cast across that courtyard that will line, it's the same blood that will line those winding streets of Jerusalem. And it's the same blood that will gush down that cross and mingle with my mother's tears as she holds on to my feet and weeps over my dead body. Remember me. Don't forget what I have done for you. That I have come for you. That I've given everything to set you free. What he's saying is this is no longer about God using an animal to save Israel out of physical slavery. It is about God coming in the flesh, waging war on our behalf, and dying to set us free from eternal sin. Look up here. You can't save yourselves. All the world's religions teach us. Just pay off your karmic debt. Be a good person. Balance the scales by doing more good works than bad works, and then maybe you'll reach nirvana or get to paradise, or maybe God will let you into heaven. And Jesus is telling us tonight, that is garbage. It's not true. You're not the hero in this story. We have a hero. His name is Jesus. He's the reason that we celebrate Easter. He's the reason that we fast during Lent. And he's the reason that we take that little, little piece of bread and that little cup of juice or wine to remember that our God so loved the world that he came for us, that he gave it all for us, simply to say, it doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what you've done or how far away you've strayed. You're welcome at the table. But here's the scary truth. Just because everyone's welcome to know Jesus doesn't mean that everyone's saved. Jesus is too much of a gentleman to force us into a relationship with him. That'd be abuse. Instead, he gives us the horrifying and difficult decision to come to him and say yes to him. And so if you don't know him tonight, or if you strayed away a thousand times, my prayer tonight is that you would say yes to him. That you would stop playing foot to sin. You need someone to talk to. You have your group leaders. You have Aaron. Otherwise, I'll be sitting right over here. And there is nothing that I enjoy more than introducing people to my Savior. And he has completely wrecked my life just to put it back together the way that he wanted to. I love you guys. I'm not just saying that as some guy who just showed up here. I don't know how. But I pray that a thousand years from now that you will look me in the face 
be able to say, I made it because you weren't too afraid to tell me the truth. Let's pray. so good. You're so much better than I could ever ask for a man. 